News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you're thinking about buying a car, or maybe it was kind of on your mind, maybe last year you thought, oh, next year will be the year I buy a car. Well, guess what? Now is actually the time to do that. Joining us to talk more about that is Nuno Lurero, who's the Director of Business Intelligence at autotrader.ca. Nuno, thank you very much for being here. Hi, Shami. Thank you so much for having me. Why is this a buyer's market right now? Yeah, well, I think uh, COVID, has, um, COVID has had a, a little bit of a... An impact on the market. So we've uh, we've actually gone out and we we um, we sent out some questionnaires and, and we really try to gather some more information. Uh, and it looks like people are are a little bit hesitant about taking uh, public transit. Uh, so sixty two percent of consumers are are more likely to say owning their own vehicle is more desirable than using public transportation. Um, so I think that is is kind of changing some consumer behavior. Um, the other thing we're, we're seeing is that uh, Canadians are four times more likely to say owning a car is more desirable than using ride sharing. Um, so that's also another trend that we're seeing out in the market. Um, so all, all of these things are, are having an impact on, on how consumers perceive uh, owning a vehicle and also obviously ride transportation and, and public transit. Right. And does that kind of combine with the fact that, listen, car makers, uh, sales are down and they would really like to sell a lot of cars? Yeah, I think uh, I think COVID has has had some impact on that. Um, I think that there's a, a lot of pent up demand, so we're actually seeing um, our, our largest ever uh, visits on on a monthly basis. So last month we actually had 22 million visits. Um, so we are seeing demand up quite a bit. Um, and alternatively, with with people kind of coming in now that are, are, are looking for vehicles um, um, as, as kind of like a replacement for taking public transit, we do see demand go up. Um, and and now is a, a great time if, if you're in the market. Yeah. So is this good for sellers too? Like, are they getting better prices for their vehicles? Because that would make it seem like it's more of a seller's market. Um, it's tough to say uh, from a seller's perspective. I mean, we don't have... Um, we don't have statistics from uh, from private sellers to know whether people are getting better deals uh, on on selling their vehicles, um, but we do know that there's a, a great marketplace that you can actually post your vehicle. Um, so if you are going to get a great price, um, Trader.ca is definitely one of those places. So um, it's it's tough to say from from a seller's market perspective, um, but but definitely from um, from a, a consumer's right. per, per perspective, now's a great time. Have they talked about, like you, you said, that they're looking potentially for a car, they don't want to take transit, they don't want to do ride-sharing. What kind of vehicles then are they looking for? Is it the smaller cars? Is it the more fuel-efficient cars? Like, what are they looking for? Yeah, well, I think uh, if, if we're looking at, um, in BC specifically, uh, the, the Ford F-150 is the most popular, um, followed right. closely by the, the Mustang, uh, the Porsche 911, the BMW M series, and Mercedes-Benz C-Class. So, uh, one of the things that you'll notice there is um, that a lot of those are sedans. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, aside from the, uh, the Ford F-150, which is um, Canada's most popular uh, vehicle, um, we we do see that sedans are are kind of resurging a little bit. So, last year we saw SUVs were were really kind of taking the market um, uh, by storm and. And this year, we're we're seeing the the return of of the sedan. Um, so I think that is uh, that is very interesting. Um, but I, I would say that sedans, obviously being a little bit more uh, economically friendly, um, are are definitely seeing a resurgence right now amid uh, amid all of the, uh, the the amid the pandemic. That is so interesting. Then, so people, these are definitely sounding like commuter cars that people are looking for. Yeah, I think. Uh, Sedans are a great way to, to get around. They're very economical. Um, they 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 they'll obviously help save on on gas. They don't they don't require as much gas to, to move uh, move you around. So I mean they're 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 fantastic cars for for anybody that's out in the market. Uh, if you're looking for a first car or uh, if you're looking to even downsize your car, I think it's a it's a fantastic option. Interesting. So not as much SUVs anymore. Uh, not this year. 
so we, like I said, we saw last year SUVs were really kind of uh, coming on strong. Um, I think that there, it's still a strong market for SUVs. We're just not seeing them appreciate as much as, as we had last year. So I, I wouldn't say that SUVs are, are on their way out or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're definitely not. Um, but I would say that uh, the market has softened a little bit for SUVs this year. All right. Interesting. Nuno, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Sammy. Really appreciate it. That's Nuno Larrero, who is the Director of Business Intelligence at autotrader.ca. Uh, they have done a survey that shows that people are more interested than they have been the last couple of years in buying a new car. And this was something that we kind of talked about at the beginning of the pandemic situation is that are people going to feel entirely comfortable getting back on transit? Are they going to be comfortable with ride, you know, ride sharing? Are they going to be comfortable doing all those things given what we now know about crowded situations and, you know, having to protect yourself? And they say that their survey has shown that people are more interested now in having their own car. What is that going to mean for our roads, for traffic, when potentially in the fall, when things get more back to normal, maybe, hopefully, does that mean we're going to see more crowded roads? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Let us know what you're thinking about that. And I know there's a lot of availability out there right now. There's a lot of people who've put cars up for sale who maybe didn't need them as much now if they're working from home. So it'd be interesting to hear from people out there who have decided to change cars uh, in this situation. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, on this Monday morning, let us introduce you to Bianca Hayes. Bianca is a young woman who has overcome an incredibly difficult past to achieve an incredible accomplishment. Bianca just finished a 6,000-kilometer bicycle ride from Vancouver to Halifax, and she did it in under 20 days to raise awareness for ovarian cancer. So that makes her, that's the fastest mainland crossing of Canada by a woman. So we thought, hey, we have to check in with her. Bianca Hayes joins us now. Good morning, Bianca. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. How are you feeling? Good, surprisingly. Actually, my, <laughs> my legs feel feel great. So that's, that's sort of a benefit. I can still walk around. So I, I didn't need the wheelchair that I thought I would when I returned. <laughs> well, congratulations. So tell us, how did this all get started? Uh, so I lost my sister Katrina in 2018 to stromal ovarian cancer. And uh, when when she passed away at her memorial, one of the, the women who was conducting the ceremony was sharing some information and statistics on ovarian cancer that that floored me. Um, I, you know, we found out that there hasn't been a change in the mortality rate and, and really a breakthrough in research in about 50 years. Ovarian cancer is one of the most, uh, it's the dead, most deadly form of all women's cancers, even though it's the fifth most common. And hearing some of these numbers and statistics, it was just, it, it really galvanized me to make sure that I, I focus all my energy and attention on to bringing more awareness to this cause. So why biking and why across Canada? So uh, I had recently started working for an AW franchisee around the time of my sister's passing, and they have a Ride to Conquer Cancer team. Um, mm. So that was the first real big bike ride that I ever did. It was 200 kilometers over two days. And as soon as I finished, I was limping around and sore, <laughs> and I felt absolutely awful. But I started thinking that I would be able to do something longer and something with more of a, a focus on ovarian cancer. So in uh, 2019, last year, I rode from Vancouver to San Francisco, and actually, at the same time, there were two other women who had ridden across the country, um, one from Vancouver to Montreal and another from Vancouver to Halifax over the course of a couple months. And we were all raising money for ovarian cancer. So somehow all of us collectively lost our minds and jumped on bikes <laughs> and, and started raising money for the same cause. And I finished the ride to San Francisco and I felt great. I felt strong still. And I was like, OK, I think I'm ready to conquer Canada. So wow. that sort of spurned me to to do this one, and I thought I'd do it as quickly as possible. And yeah, it was it was a success. It wasn't as fast as I would have liked. I was aiming for fifteen. So I think I've got I've got a grudge match coming up with Canada sometime <laughs> in the next couple of years to try and gain that back. But it was it was an absolutely amazing adventure. Um, well, you really you hear about the kindness of Canadians, but I got to see it firsthand. Tell me how, the planning that went into this. I mean, how many kilometers a day did you bike? Uh, so I was riding between 250 and about 375 a day. Whoa. Um, yeah, the last day I actually, um, so I, I pushed through, it was sort of two days in one. We, I think I closed my eyes for just over an hour um, 
and we ended up doing over 500 kilometers over the last two days. And so it was a, a test of sleep deprivation and and exhaustion, and it 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 tested everything I had, but it was it was amazingly worth it. It just made the the final the final push that much sweeter. Bianca, it sounds like you're hooked. Like it sounds like this is you love this challenge. <laughs> I definitely do. Yeah, we. It was funny because about halfway through, I looked at my support team and I just said, "I'm, I'm never doing a long bike ride again. Just don't let me. Don't let me think about it. I'm not doing it. Like we're going to get to the end of this. It's going to be amazing. And then, you know, I'll find some other ways to fundraise. And maybe I don't need to ride a bike. And then two days later, I looked at them and I was like, "No, I'm doing this faster." <laughs> so wait, so, so you're already planning long. then for the another trip? Yeah, we're looking at doing it again in two years. So hopefully that, that timeline works out. But uh, it's two to three years is sort of the plan right now to, to get back on and, and do it a little bit faster. Phenomenal. We've learned, yeah, learned sort of the things to do and the things not to do. It's definitely, yeah, it's a, it's a beast, but it was it was an absolutely beautiful trip. Yeah, did Canada you have favorites? Yeah, favorite stops along the way, favorite things that you saw? Um, I would say Quebec is honestly, it was my favorite province to ride through. Some of their roads were, uh, were not the best. I mean, any of the provinces that have winters have giant potholes and, and things that they always have to compete right. against on their roads. But Quebec has an amazing system of uh, bike paths all around the, the province. And it was absolutely gorgeous riding through there. Um, so that would have been one of my favorites. And then I have to say you just I missed BC. I, I missed the, the beautiful, the, the nicely paved roads. We're so spoiled here. And we just, I didn't even realize it until leaving. Um, but it, it definitely made me miss British Columbia quite a bit, even though there were so many mountains here. <laughs> now, yeah, exactly. That would have been tough. Let me ask you, how much money did you raise? Uh, so right now we're sitting at just under $37,000, which is really exciting. So we've raised another 3000 since I finished. Um, so we're going to keep fundraising for the rest of the year. So my, my donation page is open. I'm going to keep sort of doing some little events and, uh, hopefully when sort of social distancing is relaxed a little bit, if if some of the the virus has calmed down, then, then we'll be able to do some more things with people and, and make it a little bit more interactive. Okay. And what is your donation page? Uh, my donation page is done through Ovarian Cancer Canada. Uh, you can access it through my website, which is biancahayes.com. There's a big donate button there. And uh, it's also linked through all of my social media channels. So it, I'm just Bianca Hayes on all social media. Now, are there pictures there so we can see parts of your trip and all that kind of stuff? On my uh, social media pages, there are. We're going to be updating the website soon with some videos and photos as well. So didn't strain anything? Everything felt great when you finished? Like, this is really quite remarkable. Um, so everything other than my hands. Uh, so I, I seem to have compressed a nerve for my hands. So they're sort of locked in a handlebar position, which isn't ideal. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because, yeah, my, my legs, my back, everything else feels fantastic. That was sort of what I was worried about being in the same position for so long. But I had an amazing trainer, uh, Danielle Marks. She's a triathlete and fantastic woman. And she, she really got me prepared. So it was funny because yeah, it's just hands that apparently I didn't get ready for this. <laughs> well, Bianca, it sounds remarkable. And it also very much sounds to me like you feel like you have kind of found a real purpose in doing this. I have. Yeah, it's it's amazing what having a, a goal and having such a, a, a big cause behind you and, and something that's pushing you on will, will just help you overcome so much. I mean, sleep deprivation and, and not sleeping for about 24 hours and just being able to focus on, on why I was doing what I was doing really helped spur me on and, and help me keep going. All right. Well, congratulations, Bianca. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Simi. Appreciate your time. That's Bianca Hayes. Uh, from She did a 6,000-kilometer bike ride from Vancouver to Halifax. Yeah, Vancouver to Halifax. And she did it in under 20 days, raising awareness for ovarian cancer. Uh, just a remarkable accomplishment. And so, look at how cheery she sounds too. Like I would be like not ready to get out of bed for the rest of the year, uh, you know. So it's good for her. And if you want more information, just Google her. Check it out online, Bianca Hayes, and you can donate to her campaign. This is Mornings with Simi. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit, it has been a lifesaver for millions of Canadians. And right now, the only thing people are worried about is kind of paying their bills and using that money to do so. But a year from now, come tax time, you may be thinking, wait a minute, how come nobody told me this about the CERB? It is taxable. So if you have been collecting it, there are some important things to remember. Our Nikki Reitmeyer has more. We've introduced the biggest economic measures in our lifetime, 
which will help millions of people. That includes the Canada Emergency Response Benefit for if you've lost your paycheck. CERB, Sir. the CERB. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit was meant to support workers who'd lost their job because of the pandemic. Whether you're taking care of someone who's sick, have been laid off, or are living with a disability, the CERB is there for you. You've heard a lot about CERB over the past few months. The Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. Perhaps you've even had to use it yourself. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians have already applied for the Federal Emergency Response Benefit. Within the first nine hours of the online portal being open, at least 532,000 people applied for the benefit. At least $43 billion has been given to the more than 8 million Canadians who have applied for this benefit. For Canadians who are receiving CERB payments, it's important to remember, you should be putting some of that money aside every month, because CERB is taxable. Certified Public Accountant Sharon McClay is a partner at Manning Elliott. So if you're receiving the 2000 up to $2,000 CERB benefit, there will be a tax liability that's going to be paid on April 30th, assuming there's no extension, so it's going to be paid April 30th, 2021. If you're familiar with collecting employment insurance, note that there is a difference between CERB and EI when it comes to taxes. While Ottawa doesn't hold back any money on CERB checks and deposits, there is a little bit of tax withheld at source for EI payments. As an employee, when you receive employment income, the employer has to withhold a certain amount, and that's basically kind of collecting your tax up front. The CERB doesn't do that. So when you receive CERB, you do have to keep a portion aside for the potential tax liability that's going to arise next year. So how much money from your CERB check should you be putting aside for taxes? It's a bit hard to really give a definitive number. The concern is CERB just goes into your taxable income. So if you have other sources of income, so for instance, if you're employed for part of the year, if you have revenue from rental properties or dividends or anything else that would impact your income tax return and create more taxable income, your tax rate will go up. So in Canada, we have marginal tax rates. So the first 12000 you receive is essentially tax-free. And then everything above that gets taxed at a different rate depending on the level of income earned. For the CERB, generally speaking, a good rule of thumb might be to withhold 20% of each payment. It's not necessarily an exact number, and you may end up holding too much back or not enough. But 20% is probably appropriate, at least 20%. Sharon said that, of course, for many Canadians on CERB, putting a bit of money aside each month for tax purposes isn't easy to do, but it is necessary to save yourself potential grief down the road. It's difficult because there's a lot of expenses that need to be paid. It's $2,000. You may have rent. You may have other expenses. You know, you want to be able to eat. So if, if saving that 20% is creating a situation where you can't pay for your rent or you can't pay for the necessities of life, maybe adjust accordingly, but definitely save some because it is a taxable benefit. It will be taxed at the end of the year. As of early July, the government notes there have been over 8 million unique applications for CERB across the country, and that includes 1.1 million people here in British Columbia. If you are one of them, remember, experts suggest putting 20% of those payments away for tax purposes. I think the big thing is saving a portion of that for that future tax bill that's going to rise, especially if you're not sure where your employment situation will be for next year. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we forget sometimes that BC actually has two public health emergencies going on right now. We've got the COVID-19 situation and the opioid overdose crisis. Those stories are still there. They're still being told. For instance, you may remember a couple of months ago, we learned that very talented young local actor Logan Williams, known from the TV show The Flash, had passed away from an opioid overdose. Well, his mother, Marilise, has spoken with us about how difficult it was for her to try to find some help for him here in BC. And she wants that story, that struggle, his story, to inspire the kind of change that will help parents and adolescents that find themselves in the same situation. So here's some of our chat with her. Marlies, thank you so much for talking to us about this this morning. Let's just start out by maybe you telling me about trying to get help for Logan. What was that process like? Well, thank you so much, Simi. It's an honor to be speaking with you. Um, I, I wish it was 
about uh, something other than being in the most unfortunate club that no parent wants to be in. I just want to start with saying that Logan was um, so much, there was so much more to him than ultimately what he died of. Um, He was charismatic, extremely funny, with the best sense of humor, and but mostly he was just such a kind, kind soul. So getting the help for my son was an uphill battle. Um, lots of waiting, lots of redirecting to different places, and I noticed the most alarming element was there wasn't a lot of options for adolescents in regards to treatment centers. In fact, just a rare few because of his young age. So um, when there's lack of options comes long wait lists. And even, for example, counseling can take a few weeks just to get an appointment. And when he did see a local drug counselor, she let me know he seemed fine. And he's just being a normal teenager. So ultimately, I was very determined to get the help that my son needed. So I had to look elsewhere and found that there are a lot more choices in the state. So I ended up um, remortgaging my home for 120,000 US dollars, I know, and sent him to a treatment facility in Utah for 10 months. 10 um, months? Yes, so it was very structured, um, somewhat tailor-made for the individual that included individual and group therapy, but it also had a school component that I liked because so he wouldn't fall behind. You know, I don't believe to date there's anything like that here in BC. And how did that work for Logan then? This was earlier on, and there was not heavy, heavy drug use, but there was, uh, you know, smoking weed, skipping school, etc., where these behaviors weren't changing with just the regular counseling here. And I was determined, to me, this was not normal behavior, and I wanted so, so much to to help him. So at at first he was willing to go and he did go and he was, um, you know, he, he did get good grades and he was, he was very good there for the 10 months. But the struggle was when he returned, looking back now, the challenge was when he returned home, there wasn't the support needed locally for him to continue to move forward with how he was doing in the state. So it was kind of like back to square one. He was good for a few months. He got a job. He, you know, he, um, he, he went to summer school. He joined sports teams. But then after about eight or 12 weeks, I noticed this old behavior creeping up again. Since this has happened with Logan then, Marlies, did anything in the, in the weeks that since that happened, have you been hearing from other parents kind of in a similar situation, that need for something different and more methods of treatment? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. I have had such an enormously huge, overwhelming response. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parents reached out to me who lost their children and they always shared the same sentiment that they tried so, they, you know, each child so loved, and yet they tried and tried to help. And it was the waiting lists, you know. I, I want to be very clear, Logan died while being on a waiting list. So that's, uh, that's just shows you um, the type of urgency needed. Um, can you imagine you yeah. go to the hospital and have a heart attack and the doctor says, oh, come back in 10 or 12 weeks when we can fit you in. It's, it's such a horrific predicament to be in as a parent and because you so badly want to help your child. I have to say these 30, 60, 90 day in and out rehab generally don't work. What do you think does work then? What, what would be better? Well, I'm obviously, I'm just a grieving mother and I'm certainly no doctor and I'm no expert, but I believe extreme long-term, well-rounded care, you know, that's long, like specifically for adolescents. First, they're a teenager and then they have addiction or mental health issues. So it's a, it's a horrific combination. And I have to say some of the conventional treatment, you know, they're, you know, all of the experts told me, wait till he gets to rock bottom. And I I personally have a lot of issues with that theory because one beating being rock bottom. Yeah, rock bottom with synthetic opioids is death. I mean, you're literally literally playing Russian roulette with your life every time. So, And also studies show that longer the addict uses, the less likely the recovery will work for them. 
It's interesting, though, that what you're saying, like long-term rehab works better. We've tried so many things to fight this public health crisis, but the one thing we haven't tried is more resources for longer-term rehab. Exactly my point. We haven't really looked into that. Like I said, there's not one facility here that has a 12- to 24-month program um, sometimes it can start with, uh, like, wilderness therapy for two weeks. And, and I'm specifically talking, um, you know, obviously my passion is more for adolescents, teenagers that are, I feel they're really falling through the cracks, and they are the ones that I, I ultimately are passionate to try to help them and their families before it's too late so they don't end up like um, my beautiful boy. What would you say to other parents then, uh, Marilise, who are kind of sitting in that situation that you found yourself in? Well, I mean, I I, I joined a support group early on, um, Naranon, and that was helpful in the sense to know that I wasn't alone. But I was very diligent, constantly phoning, making appointments, really on on my son's behalf, trying to do whatever it takes. And I think that if you do have a teenager that you're really concerned about, I think um, opening up, you know, obviously the conversation, it's almost like you, you're you still a parent, but you have to really find out what's going on. I certainly didn't just wait. I, I tried very, very hard, but like I said, the resources I found were not available. There's not a lot of bills passed, so the, the parents kind of are removed from helping yeah. their children. I think it's called the uh, the Infants Act that ultimately can have children under 19 consent to their own health care, and the child does not need their parents' consent, uh, so a child's health care is confidential. So it basically excludes the parent from being able to actually parent. So that is a problem right there. How can you help if your child, say, overdoses at a friend's house? The, the teenager can tell the doctor, don't tell my mom, and they won't. So the... The new bill that's being proposed, I believe it's under the Stabilization Care Act, from my understanding, um, youth brought into the ER after an OD can be held for up to 48 hours and yeah. possibly seven days to allow them to stabilize and contact the parent or caregiver to create a plan for voluntary treatment. And I, this is a, a small step in the right direction, but I, I think it needs to be amended. For one, it's only if the youth went to the hospital. What if they overdosed elsewhere? And then also, like, 48 hours to seven days is not nearly long enough. I think it should be a minimum of 30 days. But I do really like the component of letting the parents know. I think, like I said earlier, one of the battles that parents and families face is how can we help if, if we don't know what's going on? Well, Mary Marilise, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate this. I really appreciate you and all your listeners. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing about in the news and here on the show this morning, Interior Health has now identified four different locations in Kelowna that were attended by people who had or person who had COVID-19. And this happened between July 1st and July the 9th. For a complete list of those dates, go to globalnews.ca to check that out. But to talk more about the situation now, Interior Health Medical Officer Dr. Sylvina Mima joins us. Uh, Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. This sounds like a a bit of a concern. Are you worried about the situation? Yeah, we have uh, our concerns about this situation. We have seen a number of cases uh, clustered around the Kelowna downtown and the waterfront area, and our investigation has allowed us to pinpoint uh, specific locations. As you were mentioning, uh, there were two private gatherings that we know there were cases at, and then now we have identified two businesses, and we are putting that information out there for the public as soon as we can. Do we, how, do we know how many people did have COVID-19 who might have been at those locations? Yeah, initially we had identified eight, and then uh, over the weekend we've been uh, investigating a number of other cases, so the latest uh, numbers are going to be updated uh, this afternoon. Okay, so definitely it sounds like a cluster. 
yeah, it sounds like a cluster of individuals that uh, it's it's not one single individual. It's uh, individuals that may have come uh, been sick before and were attending uh, gatherings and um, and other you know businesses right. and potentially exposing other people. So you feel that in some of these cases, these people were exhibiting symptoms, but they were still out and about in the public anyway. Some of them, I have concerns that that may have been the case, and that's why we are asking individuals, uh, you know, as we've been hearing the message, stay home if you're sick. And for tourists also, uh, individuals who come here um, to Kelowna, you know, it's a very popular uh, vacation destination, and uh, it's beautiful out here. Out here. Um, but people who are planning to sp- spend time here and they are not feeling very well, um, we ask them to, to stay um, indoors, to stay in their home and not uh, go to, to public spaces. Now, how, how many people were kind of locals? Were these people from out of town? There is a mix of individuals from my age, and there is also individuals from out of town. And that's what our investigation is uh, trying to determine, and we are working with other health authorities in determining, uh, you know, um, who was sick and was in Kelowna at that time. So do you have enough information? Like, has the contact tracing been working okay? Have restaurants and gyms and everybody, has everybody been complying? Yeah, yeah, we have been doing the contact tracing and we call everybody that we know may have been exposed and but some individuals we don't know. For example, there are these private gatherings that uh when we begin to ask who was at the gathering, not every not the the you know, people who were at that gathering, they don't know who the other individuals were uh, or who organized the party. So that's when we go and we put a public announcement so that individuals are um, aware that if they attended that party, they could have been right. exposed. Should people be attending those kinds of parties right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think that there is, you know, risk uh, to any gatherings at this point, uh, especially when there is gatherings indoors. We have, and, and the, the, the physical distancing cannot be uh, met, right? So if you attend the party at a, uh, an apartment building, um, you know, how many people can you really fit? in that uh, apartment building. So there is a cap that we have from our provincial health officer to, you know, restricting gatherings to no more than 50 people. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the cap that we have, the official cap. But I would say that, you know, we would discourage parties indoor, uh, particularly when the distancing cannot uh, be met. And we encourage individuals who are planning to attend these gatherings to be um, mindful about who is organizing the party, who are going to be at the party, um, and those kinds of things mm-hmm. to to minimize their risk. Are you concerned, Dr. Mima, about complacency? Like, does it sound to you like perhaps people were a little too loose with the rules? Well, I think that, you know, in, in the for the most part, people are complying with the rules, but it doesn't take much to, you know, go out and see that uh, sometimes we see these uh, larger groups and we wonder, are these people safe or have they just met, you know, at the park and are uh, coming together? Um, people are, you know, eager to um, socialize. This is the, the summer, particularly the younger uh, group, mm-hmm. the 20s and 30s. They are eager to do that. And there may have been some uh, complacency. Is this a good reminder then for people that this is why we have these rules in place? Absolutely. I think that this cluster is a lesson for us here and for everybody, really, um, to, to demonstrate that, uh, you know, we, we have, you know, first of all, we have been able to flatten the curve and, and control this disease, but this, it's, we can't let our guard down. It, this is not over, and there is still risk, and we need to be careful. What's the mask situation like in Kelowna? Would you like more people to wear them? There are individuals that are wearing masks. As you know, we have, you know, specific uh, recommendations for wearing masks. Definitely anybody who is sick and is going to find, you know, to, uh, for healthcare, um, people who are caring for somebody that is sick. But then for individuals who are healthy, it's really a personal choice. Um, it may protect others because it keeps your droplets in. Um, but, you know, masks alone will have a minimal effect if they don't are, if they are not used in conjunction with other uh, measures like the distancing and being mindful of who you are around. So we are seeing people here in Kelowna wearing masks, not everybody, obviously. Now, I guess the message then, Dr. Mima, today is, listen, if you've got symptoms of any kind, 
you've got to isolate because it sounds like not everybody was taking that seriously. Yes, that would be the, the, you know, the most important message that we want to convey. And sometimes symptoms are very mild. So it's, sometimes it's difficult for people to, um, to assess. They, they say, yeah, you know, I felt a little bit, uh, my nose was a bit stuffy, but I thought it was the air conditioning. So sometimes those are, are a little difficult to pinpoint. And by the time we determine that it's a positive test, that person has been, you know, in contact with other individuals. So absolutely self-monitor for, te- for symptoms. And if, you know, if there is a doubt about symptoms, stay indoors and, um, and get tested. All right, Dr. Mima, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. That, that's Dr. Sylvina Mima, the Interior Health's Medical Health Officer. They've now identified four different locations in Kelowna that were attended by people infected with COVID-19, as many as eight, possibly a few more people who had COVID-19. And this happened between July 1st and July 9th. Now, find out if you were there. If you were in that vicinity and think, I might have been at one of these locations, you better go online and check that, globalnews.ca. It is a cluster of cases, and they are worried because a couple of them were private parties, and they're still trying to track down everybody who may have been at at these private parties, too. This is Mornings with Simi. Contact tracing. I think we're realizing more and more every day just how important that is. We were just talking with Interior Health about the cluster of COVID-19 cases they have there and the absolute number one reason why they hope to be able to get it all under control is by tracking down the people who may have been connected, and that is contact tracing. Now, it can happen a few different ways, and one of the ways that has been kind of put forward is by using these contact tracing apps. But so far in BC, we haven't really taken that approach. We haven't released any kind of app like that, but Alberta has. They've had one available for months now, so we wanted to find out more about it. Denny Gagnon joins us now, president of BCSI Investigations. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. So you had this app. You tried this out? I tried this out. I mean, I'm looking, I call it the maze of contact tracing because it's a huge amount of complexity attached to it. I don't know if your phone is like mine, but there is a multitude of apps on my phone. And I did go to Alberta. I was working on, I was on business there and mm-hmm. I, was, I was quite impressed by the simplicity of the app. And um, simplicity is a big thing. It was really easy to put on. I turned my cell phone, give me a code. So it kept my privacy, and it's sitting on my phone now. So, um, yeah, it was it was really good. And then the hotels were cooperating to get all the information. Uh, it was a well-known chain of hotels that was very precise in their work. And so I felt, I felt kind of protected. It was good. So that means that if in the next couple of weeks, someplace that you were at has an exposure to COVID-19, the app will know that and will let you know. Let's hope not. So let's hope, <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed, hope not, but that's the way it should work. Yes, it does. And, but, you know, like I said, there is a, a huge amount of complexity of it because some people, I mean, don't have smartphones. I mean, you look at some yeah. seniors, they don't have smartphones. Um, I mean, the focus is, as you know, everywhere on testing, right? But the issue is that all those people are going to find out about if somebody tested positive. So the app is a great idea, but implementation is always a problem. And I know uh, BC isn't, is still working on planning one. Uh, like I said, Alberta simplicity was really good. It's a little app sitting on my phone. And the problem as well is that some of the time, some of the apps, the phone has to be uh, running. So your phone has to be on yeah. and the app has to be turned on. So what happens to that as well on your smartphone, it, it will affect your battery uh, length, you know, in regards to uh, uh. decreasing your, your battery life. So there is, there is, it's not perfect yet. But in my way, I like the fact that if something happens, I can be contacted immediately. But as you know, as you know, in Kelowna, not everybody wants to give their information. Yes, or is it impossible? Private party, you, you don't know some of the people may be there. Some people don't want to say that they were there. Look at what happened at Number 5 Orange, right? Yeah. They don't want to. I mean, you're not going to promote that maybe you were there. So that they use, this, is not a, a, this is not a linear approach. But it, in my view, and I, I came full mm-hmm. spectrum. At first, I was no, no, no privacy issues and now I've come all the way but experiencing the one in Alberta and now I'm on board okay. so as long as it's protected Alright, Denny, thank you so much for your time Thank you, have a great day You too, that's Denny Gagnon, President of BCSI Investigations, as you heard him say, he's come full circle on the issue of contact tracing apps now that he's had some experience with one, would you download one of these on your phone? Would you do that? Uh, sounds like we should, you know, I'm sure this is going to be something we're going to be talking about in the weeks ahead 
This is Mornings with Simi. We think that the evidence is there. The calls are there. The death rate is so high, we can't afford more time. So we think it needs to be immediate. That's Caitlin Shane, a lawyer and advocate working to support people with addictions. You know, more people in British Columbia died from an overdose in the month of May than from COVID-19. And this week, the BC coroner's office is set to announce the number of overdose deaths from the month of June. Remember, there are two public health crises going on in BC right now. And one is the opioid overdose crisis and the other is COVID-19. We're joined now by the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Judy Darcy, to talk about what is being done and what more can be done uh, for people who are struggling with these addictions issues. Thank you so much for being here. Me too, Simi. Thank you for your interest. Well, we earlier spoke to the mom of Logan Williams, the young actor who was in The Flash, who died of an overdose uh, a couple of months ago. And she was talking about more supports for adolescents in particular. Is this something that your ministry is focused on? We certainly are. We're looking at increasing supports for people of all ages, including young people. And uh, those supports really range from ensuring that doctors and nurse practitioners are more familiar with addiction medicine to these new uh, substance use integrated teams that we're announcing today that are really about reaching out to people, not waiting for people to come to you, but reaching out to people that we know are struggling with addiction to the new um, addiction treatment and recovery beds that we announced on Friday, 50 to 70 new beds across the province in, in areas where they're needed the most. And as you know, we've... Um, really been ramping it up as far as access to safe prescription alternatives to the poison drug supply because it isn't one magic bullet. It's not one single yeah. solution. Uh, so we're really trying to add support. And, and you know, Simi, we're, we're dealing with the, the challenges that we're having have existed for a very long time, the lack of beds, the lack of services and supports for people struggling with addiction. So our government is really working overtime to build a system of care for people. There's a lot more to do, but these recent announcements about the overdose, um, the substance use integrated teams and the recovery and treatment beds are really important additions. Let's talk about the big news from late last week, and that is the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police calling for the decriminalization of illicit drug use. What does your ministry think of that? Well, from day one, our ministry and our government has said that addiction is a public health issue and it should be treated that way. It shouldn't be treated as a moral issue. It shouldn't be treated as a criminal issue. So we certainly support the call by the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police uh, to decriminalize people um, who have in their possession small amounts of drugs for personal use, those people need to be connected to health care, not to the criminal justice system. And we certainly support the federal government making those changes, and we support the call of the police chiefs for that. So will the province lobby the federal government to make that happen? Well, we've already, I can't tell you how many conversations have already taken place. And um, uh, at, at health ministers' meetings, in private meetings, uh, in the, the, the Premier has certainly indicated that he's had those conversations with the Prime Minister. So we will continue to press that case. And, but within British Columbia, we are doing everything within our power. And we have, we have been from the beginning. And we need to be, you know. Our death toll as a result of gargantuan efforts uh, was slowly going down, was finally beginning to come down before COVID-19 hit. Now we've seen a spike, as you know, mm -hmm. with the incredibly poison drug supply on the street. And so we uh, continue to escalate our response every day, every week, every single month. So we also heard that during this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, BC did get that exemption to offer a safe drug supply in kind of right. limited form. Has that had any kind of an impact? It is having an impact, but as you can see, it's not bringing down the death toll yeah. yet. But, but we, you know, I've been getting the numbers, uh, trying to get the numbers almost on a, on a weekly basis. We now have close to 1,300 people who are, who are on hydromorphone, for example, which is the main prescription medication that people take as an alternative to the poison drugs on the street. So that's, you know, but we're trying to get the word out uh, through doctors, through nurse practitioners. We're working with Dr. Bonnie Henry and her office to try and find new ways to expand access to uh, safe prescription medications because the drug supply is more poisoned than ever. And COVID-19 
COVID-19, of course, has led to more isolation and less people seeking out help, right? Less people going to family doctors, less going to emergency rooms, and less going to overdose prevention sites. So we're really, you know, we're trying to add new tools to our toolbox every day. And these 50 to 70 new treatment beds um, are an important part of that. And so are these, so are these uh, substance use integrated teams, because they're really about having a team of nurses, of uh, outreach workers, peer support workers, social workers, and others reaching out to try and connect people to treatment. One of the things I learned oh, a while back is from the, from the coroner's report, mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority of people who died of overdose had a connection with the healthcare system in the year before they died. Um, that might have been the emergency room. It might have been a right. clinic. We need to connect those. We need to find those people. We need to connect back with them so that we can prevent overdoses. And that's what all of these, you know, and it's really a suite of options because we need right. them. There isn't one magic bullet. Well, Minister Darcy, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you so much for your interest. Bye-bye. That's Judy Darcy, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, talking about the different ways that the government continues to try to fight those opioid overdose numbers. They would also like to see what the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police called for last week. That's decriminalization of illicit drug use. More to come. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Prime Minister is speaking right now about a number of different things. Of course, he's commenting on the we situation, but he was also talking about extending the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy Program, which has been quite a lifeline for many businesses, and it sounds like that's going to be extended for a couple of months. We'll have more on those comments and the impact on businesses uh, coming up in a few minutes. Right now, though, I want to talk about how difficult it has been during this pandemic situation for people to plan for the future. Like, how do you financially plan for this? How do you think about saving money moving forward? Well, we're going to talk more about that now with the help of our next guest, Melissa Leung, who's the author of the award-winning finance guide, Happy Go Money. And in addition to speaking on global news and writing for all sorts of publications across Canada, Melissa, thanks for being here. Good morning, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. Is this the big challenge right now, do you think, is that people are going, listen, I've already got less money coming in and the future is uncertain. How can I save? I think this is a huge, huge concern for so many Canadians, especially when the pandemic first swept across the country. There was so much fear and uncertainty. And I think one of the things that we all need to do when we're faced with uncertainty is to get clarity. I know usually when you're freaked out about something, the answer usually is, I'm just going to hide. I'm going to bury my head in that. I don't want to think about this. But when it comes to your money, that is the absolute worst thing to do. So if you haven't already done so at the beginning of all of these closures, as things are starting to open up, things are starting to slowly return back to normal, it's time to take stock again. It's time to go through your finances and look at how much money is coming in and how much money exactly is going out in terms of your expenses, line by line. How much money are you actually spending? And trying to understand what things can I cut? How can I get super lean on those things? And then assess the risk to your income. Uh, I know that uh, in the last month, we had a million new jobs added. And so if you are making money again, this is the time to think about the exact thing that you brought up at the very top uh, of the segment, which is saving. Do I have room now to save? I guess the other thing too, I wonder is, you know, is this going to change people's spending habits, do you think? Because, you know, people are still shopping, they're going online, they're still going to those coffee shops, you still see the lineups at all those places. But do you think people's spending habits have changed? I think that when it comes to a recession, it is always and has always been a time for us to reevaluate our lives and our spending and our financial habits, including, you know, we think about it as a business, you know, when businesses go through it, so they think, okay, let's look at how much cash we've got, let's how much, how much debt we have, how can we, how can we float ourselves going forward? But it happens on a personal level too. I think all of us have felt absolutely uh, the tension, the tightness, even if you haven't actually lost your job, I think it's made you cognizant of, wow, this is, you know, maybe I have more money coming in now because I'm not spending it out on entertainment and whatnot. But there has been a huge shift in terms of how you view finances. And I think it's something that we all need to ask ourselves. What what exactly is that shift? What have we thought differently? You know, there was a story in, in, uh, on BNN talking about how people were hoarding $50 bills and so there's this shortage. And so I think there was that, this idea of, well, we need more security. We need, we need more safety 
And to do that, we need money. (laughs) Yeah, but already people are probably cutting it pretty close to the edge, wouldn't you say, in terms of just barely making it right now? Yes, many Canadians have already struggling and we were an indebted citizen ship prior to this. We, We carried a lot of debt and the as we return to some of our day-to-day, you know, as you said, going for coffee and doing our online shopping, especially since we've all become more comfortable using online uh, as our, our, our every, our, for our everyday go-to needs, uh, I do think it's important to sit back and think, okay, what lessons have I learned over these past few months and what can I carry forward to make sure that I'm stronger? You know, if you have, uh, if you haven't lost your job, if you continue to make money during this time, this is a very, very important, important turning point for you. Can you save more money for, first of all, emergencies and second of all, your future? You never know what's going to happen in the future, uh, what kind of retirement you want. Yes, that's very, very long term, but life, as we all know, is full of twists and turns and you need to plan for it. Otherwise you won't have choices. Right. Because I feel like also the last couple of months there were, you know, we were all working together. Banks had deferred mortgage payments, credit card companies had been more understanding, but eventually that's all going to run out. It's already starting to run out for people. You know, people, I, I, I said, you are your best advocate when it comes to money. Uh, the bank is not going to call you and let you know that, hey, by the way, that mortgage deferral that you asked for a couple months ago, that's up. They're just going to start charging you again. And so, uh, you know, an interest has has been accruing anyway. So this is the time. OK, we're not maybe I'm going back to work. I need to also figure out uh, this interest that I've been that not, you know, not tackling on my credit card, which has just been accruing. You're just going to be in more debt. So you do need to get serious about okay, where do I stand and how do I move forward? And if that might mean that you need a financial coach, that might mean you need to go to your bank and have a conversation with someone um, once things are starting to open up, once you can actually get through to an operator, get them on your side. Let's talk about this. How can I get back on track? Yeah, and what about the idea of consolidating debt? I think consolidation is always a good conversation to have with a professional when it comes to creating a strategy for paying things back. It also is a good option if you think, you know what, I'm overwhelmed, I need to figure out how to do this, and I am motivated. This is important because I think people think, well, I'm just going to consolidate it. I'm just going to get, you know, maybe I'll um, get this this new credit card that has a lower balance or that a no fee for a certain period of time. And you don't understand that there's a fine print. And then maybe you don't understand that, yeah, you got into the habit of getting into debt because of what I said, the habit part. And so if you're going to consolidate and continue the spending that is also not going to serve you. Yeah. Uh, and so having a great, greater strategy about, okay, well, I'm going to cut back on this. Maybe I'm going to pick up some extra hours doing this, and I'm going to get serious about making sacrifices to tackle my debt and get it lower. Uh, and also think about future. Tackle my debts and maybe put some aside for the future. All right. This all sounds great advice. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to me. Have a great week.